Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Um, hello, everyone. Um, I'm really thrilled to... I'm oh, sorry, my zippers are making a scratchy noise. Um, I'm really thrilled to be here and to be a part of this. I actually wish that I'd been around for more of the talks because it sounds like you've had a pretty fascinating time. Um, and of course, this is very relevant to me because I'm a, I'm a member of a number of different communities. There's, there's the ethnic ones, the Polish, Scottish community, obviously the Australian community, the broader community, um, uh, part of the comedy community, the film, the television, now the book community, via Sharon vicariously, the netball community. <laughs> Um, and also, I think, via Sharon, the Irish dancing community, um, or the bad Irish dancing community. But when I was a, a, a young woman, rung, young, as I said to, I, met, I don't want to name drop, but Clang, um, when I met um, Gloria Steinem the other day, because she presented me with my award and I nearly fainted, um, uh, I said to her, when I was a young, radical, lesbian feminist, working in a women's refuge, she was my hero. Um, and that's kind of how I started out very much in the community sector. So I'm actually, if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to read a bit from my book that talks about my experiences uh, as a young volunteer initially. I know that's a, a, a complicated and a problematic position, but um, working in the women's refuge movement, which was, of course, created from a need by a group of women back in the days when no one even really believed that domestic abuse and violence existed. Uh, nothing was done about it. Um, the perpetrators really were allowed to go off scot-free and the women were frequently blamed. And so I started in 1979 um, and uh, 1980 and um, this was in the very, very early days of the women's refuge movement uh, and it was because of feminists that this was started. They had the, the energy and the dynamism and the politics. Yes, a little round for the feminists. Um, uh, so I was at Melbourne University and um, uh, my growing awareness that I was certainly not straight um, uh, meant that I was gravitating towards an alternative way of looking at the world that, that I would feel that would include me. Um, and through that I became increasingly politicised and, uh, and then I wanted to sort of not just not just have those ideals, but really put my money where my mouth was and really do something to actually try and um, be a participant in making change happen. So um, this, is, this is from the book describing those early days. Around the end of first year, when I was at uni, I had volunteered for the Women's Refuge Referral Service, which was housed in the Women's Liberation Building in West Melbourne. Several times a week, I would ride my bike over to the centre and spend a few hours working the phones taking calls, placing desperate women and their children in refuges and emergency accommodation. I began to feel my life's work and my heart's desire were aligning. But what I really wanted was to work in a refuge. The women who worked in the refuges had an aura about them. Whenever I saw them, it was as though they walked in slow motion. They were uncompromising warriors on the front line, bravely confronting patriarchal violence in its most dangerous domain, the family home. They were changing the world, and it was dangerous work. Sometimes the violent husbands would attack the workers. I can never be certain if it was compassion, idealism, or recklessness that drew me to it. 
I was by now 19, the same age my father was when he joined his unit in the Polish resistance. Like him, I was angry and full of despair. But a bright fire of idealism burned within me, so intense it felt originary. I felt it was mine and mine alone. In the middle of second year, uni, I applied and was accepted. I think perhaps I was the youngest worker in the state at that time, and I certainly felt it. I was kind of like a team mascot, but at least now I was a refuge worker. I was still studying part-time, and my old student diary from 1980 reads like a socialist feminist debutante's dance card. <laughs> it is a whirlwind of rallies for the homeless, squatters' union gatherings, meetings with government ministers, May Day marches, street theatre rehearsals, screen printing sessions, and women's dances organised by an entity known as the Coven, all interspersed with reminders to go to the laundromat. The refuge was run by a collective, us. Lots of the workers were lesbians and they became mentors for, mentors for me in work and life. I especially loved Barb. She wore fedoras, smoked long, thin, thin cigarillos and had a great sense of the ridiculous. Once when a rather earnest worker was complaining of her industrial deafness, Barb teased her, oh, you incurable romantic, and winked at me from beneath the brow of her fedora. The other woman who was very literal didn't get it. The locations and identities of the refuges were completely secret. The refuge I worked at was called Matilda and its location was never any more specific than the vague designation Northwest Region. The large rambling old brick home had from memory four bedrooms, each of which contained several beds and bunks. There would be one family per room. The women and their families would stay until we could organise a housing commission flat for them. We had to find the women new identities names, driver's licenses, schools for the kids. They often had to leave everything behind, they often had to leave behind everything they knew. Home, family, friends. Every few weeks a new family would arrive at the refuge. The women were bruised and broken, the kids fractious and scared. The worst was when the kids were hurt. That cut deep into your soul. The work was confronting and frightening but also a real privilege. Seeing these women and children slowly mend made me feel worthwhile, although some, of the although some of the socialist feminists at the refuge would have considered such talk dangerous, sentimental, victim saviour bullshit. A lot of the work at the refuge was sheer drudgery, shopping for food, buying toilet paper, going down to the Department of Social Security. I struggled with the practical stuff and I was too young to really, truly empathise with the women. But I really loved chatting with the residents, getting to know them and their kids. And finally, I found a way to be useful. One of the workers had a friend who had a house in the country at Blackwood, where we would take the kids on camp. I would do childcare during the day, and at night by the open fire, I would spin long nonsense yarns, doing all sorts of accents and funny voices. We would all laugh and fall about, and the kids would scream, more, more. And something in me clicked. Something about this felt very right to me. The whole point of the refuges was to empower victims, to give them a voice, to hear them. But it was a delicate balance. Eventually I learned that it was often the ones who loved, often it was the ones who loved to talk, who came to rely too heavily on the social life of the refuge and struggled later on. Out on their own in a commission flat with just their kids to talk to, the loneliness got to them. Despite our best efforts, 
Some failed to escape the complex emotional hold of their abusive partners. That was gutting. The strain on the workers was, was tremendous and it was a running joke that every couple of years a worker burned out, which is a euphemism for having a breakdown. Um, I wanted to give that example because I think um, very much I think what community is about. It's about courage, it's all the C words. Courage, caring, compassion, creativity, connection. Uh, and certainly I learnt that even before actually working at the Women's Refuge, I, I went to um, a Catholic girls' school and the nuns, they're very much led by example and inculcated into us along with our education was a belief in the importance of community and of looking after those less fortunate than yourself so that it's not just about self-interest. Um, and that's what I see when I come to a thing like this. I see all of you people who are very much committed to those values. But... It's also a question, isn't it, of how you make those values work and then how you get your message across. So there's two things I want to talk about. One is that, um, interestingly, uh, that refuge, we had a policy of consensus. Nothing could be done without complete consensus. Except there was one socialist feminist, um, a woman of great conscience, uh, but we got to the point where um, she couldn't decide what sort of toilet paper we should buy. <laughs> Um, because she didn't want to support various multinationals. And we had to eventually institute consensus minus one <laughs> so that we could make some practical decisions. Um, but also, in that story, I relate about telling a story. And I think that's a very important thing as well, because how do you get across... We all speak different languages. And the language of the community sector can be very, very different for the from the language of government or from the language of business? And how do we find a common ground? And I think a lot of that is through the telling of stories. Um, if, for example, you look at the, um, in the transgender community, the impact of Caitlyn Jenner completely changed consciousness. Um, if you look at the number of, from, this is from me speaking from the perspective of the LGBTQI community, of which, of course, I'm also a part, um, the example of, of so many shows like Orange is the New Black or so many television shows that have had either transgender or non-straight characters in them. And that is very much a way for people to be able to identify and for us to broaden out the sense of what a community is and who's included in it. Because so many of us feel that we are marginalised in our communities and that we don't have any say. And it's very important, I was just talking to Jordan before, with all the with all the advances that are happening in technology. Um, it was funny, I, I went to this book club the other day and uh, the book was Frankenstein and it's still as relevant as ever. The point being that Frankenstein is about new technology um, and that if we don't keep rooted in the very important values of community, then that's how technologies are abused and we get into a, a very dangerous place. But we do all have to work at ways, I think, to find language so that it's not just... It was one of the frustrations I felt when I was working in the refuge, that it becomes its own world and you become your own sort of um, uh, little organism. But that thing of actually knowing how to talk to other people in their own language is the way of building bridges but also getting things done. I mean, speaking from the perspective of someone who's been asked to advocate on behalf of Actors' Equity, I've gone to dinners with the Prime Minister 
I can talk, you know, story and, um, you know, hearts and souls and flowers and all that till the cows come home. He's not listening, partly because he's a bit deaf. But this was John Howard. But, um, <laughs> but it was when someone spoke to him in percentages, he literally sat up in his chair and heard what they were saying because he understands numbers. He understands... Sorry, my phone's vibrating. He understands percentages. So I think um, one of the things that... Um, uh, I could have very much da gone down the path of the social welfare path uh, uh, um, uh, role. Um, and I still feel that very much, increasingly probably actually, um, the sense of community... I mean, my local community where I live, um, all those sorts of communities that we all are part of and that intersect in and through us, are enormously important to me. But one of the things that I've tried to, as much as possible, hone and um, finesse has been the communication skills to try and build bridges between communities. So, for example, with my book, one thing I absolutely agonised over, and just to give you a bit of a sense of what the book's about, it isn't a celebrity memoir and it isn't a comedy. The first line of the book is, if you had ever met my father, you had never thought, not for an instant, that he was an assassin. Because my father, during the Second World War, was an assassin in a top-secret counterintelligence unit executing Polish collaborators and traitors. And the crimes of which these um, collaborators and traitors were, were found guilty was um, giving secrets to the Nazis and telling the Gestapo where Jewish people were hiding. And Poland was the only country where the penalty for hiding a Jew was the death sentence. But my entire family at enormous risk to themselves, chose to um, be altruistic, altruistic and to risk their own lives in order to stand up for what they believed in and to protect the rights of others. Um, but there is two of the other communities that I'm very strongly connected to are the Polish Catholic community and the, and the Polish Jewish community. And there's enormous, very acrimonious um, feeling between those two communities. And I wanted, if I could at all possibly, help to build a bridge of empathy between those two communities. Um, because it, especially when we're hurt, we do just sort of devolve into our little own universes. Um, and when feelings are running high. Um, and it has been one of the... I, I, I Seriously, I mean, I lost sleep. And talking about telling other people's stories um, and what right you have to them, that was one of the things that nearly stopped me writing the book. Um, was that sense of do I have the right to tell stories? And it's a tricky one because, because um, if, 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 you know, otherwise stories don't get told. And it is very important that we tell the stories so that we can all share. That's the way we communicate experience. Um, and stories are a very powerful way of doing it. Apart from just giving information, there's a feeling component in stories and an empathy and an identifying um, component in stories that means that people are taken along on the journey. So I was incredibly nervous, first of all. I was literally, I can't tell you how many nights I lost in sleep worrying about if I was going to hurt someone or offend them or, you know, even by leaving them out. Um, and one of the things I was most concerned about was because of that, those incredibly inflamed feelings between the Polish and Jewish communities, I thought the worst thing I could do would be to make that worse. And so I agonised and agonised and fretted and annoyed my publishers, um, worrying over every word that I put into that book. I mean, I spent eight years on and off writing that book. I really spent a long time on it. 
And uh, I said to the, the, the upshot of it is, much to my great relief, um, that what's happened with the book is that in fact both of those communities, the Jewish community and the Polish Catholic community, feel a real sense of ownership of the one book. Um, and that's why I think um, stories, and I, I always think stories, I, I can't think of a better word to use because it's such a, that's from my sort of world, a real bit of lingo. And I think jargon is one of the things that um, we really need to free ourselves from as much as possible because that is what shuts people out. And that is what keeps people separate when we use jargon from our own words and I, from our own, own worlds. And I know it's easy and it makes communication amongst us a lot simpler. But for anyone else, it really is a way of, of having a fence around you and keeping them out. Um, and so it was, you know, one of the greatest, um, most extraordinary moments of my life was when I was invited to talk for Courage to Care, which is a Jewish organisation that acknowledges people who help Jewish people during the war, but also who help in all sorts of other circumstances. And um, at the end of the Q&A, um, there's two elderly Jewish women who are in their mid-90s who had been helped by Jewish Catholics, got up, one of them read the most beautiful poem, and then they gave me a certificate honouring my father and his family. There wasn't like a dry eye in the, in the whole room. Um, and my family didn't do what they did for acknowledgement uh, at all. And in fact, they, they, they lost everything, as my father said. Um, because of their activities in the resistance, they were cattle trucked out of Warsaw. My father was cattle trucked to a POW camp. He never saw his parents again from the age of 20. So I grew up very much with a sense of what doing the right thing can cost you. But I also grew up with a sense of watching people from the various communities of what not doing the right thing can cost you as well. And I think ultimately that, lay, that weighs more heavily on your soul. Certainly, I, I mean, it seems sort of obvious, doesn't it? But um, the risks that you take in um, standing up for what you believe in and, and for the values of your community, I think they, it has a sort of a feedback loop where it actually makes you feel so much more congruous with your own values. I know for me, when I came out in 2012, the very act of that courage of, of, of coming out, because it was, you know, I'm a very open, transparent kind of person, living in a world that, that doesn't always allow for that. Um, but that very act of coming out, uh, the courage that was involved in that, and I, I struggle with the word courage because, <laughs> I mean, my God, you know, look at the Coming from the family that I come from, my grandmother was a 45-year-old, fat, middle-aged... And I use the word fat very deliberately, by the way. I use the word fat very deliberately because we certainly, when we think of heroes, don't think of fat women. She was... Do we? <laughs> a middle-aged, um, upper-middle-class Polish fat matron who hid Jewish people in her house and who slept with a folded-up Polish flag under her head and a pistol in her pocket most likely for use on herself and her own children had they been caught. That's, for me, that's, the, that's the, the, the image of courage that I grew up with. So for me, I had a very long journey to go on to discover my own courage um, and realising, um, and I have to be careful how I say this, but you might understand what I'm saying, that in a way, from my situation as a gay person, um, I was the minority group. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that 
The difference between LGBTQI people and other minorities is that with other minority groups, the family shares the minority status. If you're Greek or Vietnamese, your whole family is Greek and Vietnamese, unless you're adopted out, but generally speaking, you know what I'm talking about. And you learn from the collective wisdom and you can share with your family how to negotiate the world as one of that minority. But if you're an LGBTQI person, you're a minority of one within your own family, within that very primal unit of survival and safety, you're an alien. And many of us, I, I knew from the age of five or six that I was not like the rest of my family. And that is a form of trauma in itself. That realisation that you're not the same and that the world doesn't welcome you. Um, don't get me started on the marriage equality issue. Um, but I think um, all of what I'm driving at here is that the importance of community and the values that we have and the values that we share and the ability to tell stories and communicate, but also to come together in moments like this when we find that our values align and we discover more and more of what we have in common rather than what separates us uh, are enormously important. Um, the communities in my life have made me able to keep going on, to be really honest. Uh, at times when I've, I've struggled with anxiety and depression, any of you who saw A Current Affair will know that now. Um, but that sense of a community is, can sometimes be an absolute lifeline. Um, but it also is very much how we'll change things. And it was interesting talking to Jordan earlier about the changes in technology. And I've been going on all this week about the, um, the challenges to copyright in this country. But it's something that we really as communities, we do need to be in control and we need to know that we have the power and that we're not just battery-fed hens like consumers just being force-fed stuff by people who want to sell things to us. We do need to have a sense of our own agency and we do need to have a sense that we can actually change things um, and that, that I think ultimately really is the only reason we're here is to just add whatever it is that bring whatever it is that we feel that we can give uniquely um, and uh, put our shoulders to the wheel and then together we will all change the wheels of history. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.